Merry Christmas, everybody. It is great to worship with you this morning and to sing Christmas songs with you. There is an old Italian legend about a woman named Bafana who lived along the dusty road that led to Bethlehem. Her village, uh, she was her village's best housekeeper. She was meticulous in her ways, which was no small task in a place that contained all of that dust. And late one night, there was a knock on her door, and she opened it to find three kings in search of a baby born to be the king of the Jews, the Prince of Peace. And frankly, what she also saw was all of the dust that blew in and all of the dirt that was on their boots and on their clothing as they entered her home. They asked to rest a while and invited her to join them on their journey. And she said that she'd love to, but she had to get the house back in order after they left and that there was a load of laundry to be done. And she said, let me finish up and I'll be right behind you. They told her that all she needed to do was to follow the star. She worked all night. And finally, near dawn, she put on her heavy cloak. She took a little straw doll that she wanted to give the baby, and she left her house, spick and span. But the sky had clouded over and she couldn't see the star. It began to rain, and her little doll was ruined. And finally, she gave up and went home. I'm a foolish old woman, she said to herself. I missed my chance to worship the Prince of Peace. Perhaps I will find him someday. So the legend is that each year, She sets out with a bag of toys, leaving some at every house where there's a child in hopes that one of them might be the child that she missed. This woman was the woman who was too busy for Christmas. I hope that you're not too busy for Christmas. I hope that in the middle of the frenzy of the season, with all of its activities that you feel the busyness of, I feel the busyness of, I hope that you're not too busy to pursue the thing that is the most important during this time of season. And as we continue in our Advent season, we look today in our series called The Christmas King to one of the Psalms that foretells about the coming of King Jesus. It helps us to anticipate, it helps us to focus our celebration during this time of year. The psalm that we consider this morning is Psalm 72. And I want to ask you to grab a Bible and turn there with me. We're going to refer to it many times throughout the message. It's on page 485 of that pew Bible in front of you. Psalm 72 is one of the royal psalms. It is a long and poetic prayer that King David prays for the future king of Israel. For David, it is a prayer that he prays for his son Solomon as he would take the throne. But as we read the prayer and as we see 
what it says, we recognize very quickly that its ultimate fulfillment is not found in Solomon. It's actually found in King Jesus. And in this way, it's a Christmas prayer. It's a psalm that helps us to anticipate the coming of the Lord at Christmas. And so follow with me as we read, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 72. This is what it says. David prays, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In this day, may the righteous flourish and the peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities, like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The psalm is a prayer that contains many, many petitions. It's bold in its ask of God, And just the sheer number of petitions that he brings to God are overwhelming at first glance. We see that we can probably more easily divide the psalm among some themes that are repeated throughout. And the first one is a prayer for righteousness and justice. And we see this in the first stanza and in verses 12 through 14. The first element of the prayer is for a righteous and a just king. 
But look carefully at the words. The psalmist does not merely pray for the king to be just. He prays, give the king your justice and your righteousness, O God. Because he recognizes that the human perspective on justice and righteousness can waver from person to person, from situation to situation, when there is no constant referent, which, when there's no constant referent, it results in confusion. It results in mixed categories. It results in arguing about what's real and what isn't real. And often it results in more injustice than actual justice. This is illustrated in our time in numerous ways. I think about an article that was published not long ago, which was entitled something along the lines of the biggest issues of justice in our time. And the author goes on to list a bullet point with explanation for each one of what she believes to be the biggest issues of justice facing our society today. These are some of the things that she lists. Voting access, climate change, healthcare, immigration, body autonomy, racial injustice, gun violence, child abuse, poverty, speciesism, which is just very simple if you don't know what that means. The fact that we should, in her estimation, view all species of equal value as the human species. And if we don't, that's an injustice. So don't eat meat. Fat shaming in the workplace, discrimination against pregnant women, lack of adequate water, and stereotyping, and the list goes on. And as I read the list out loud, every person with any political interest has these issues either cheering or scowling, depending upon how the issues themselves are framed. But it illustrates the point that our issues of justice are short-sighted. They're incomplete. They're corrupted. David doesn't want the king to waver. He doesn't want short-sighted justice or righteousness. He wants something that will stand the test of time. Something that will be applicable to all people. And in recognizing that God himself is the true king of the world, he requests that God's justice and God's righteousness be the way of the king. And we see that this justice and righteousness is related to those who have need. Those who have need probably because some kind of injustice has been perpetrated upon them. And so look at verse 2. He says, May he, the king, judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. He goes on to say in verse 13, he has pity on the weak and the needy and he saves the lives of the needy. When God's king has his righteousness and his justice, then those who are needy will have their needs met. 
No one will have need any longer. How will it happen? God himself will do it through the rule of the appointed king. The next set of requests are categorized as prayers for longevity and for universal rule. And you see this in verses 5 through 11 and again in 15 through 17. The request that David makes is that this king will rule forever and his rule will be global in its scope. Look at with me, verse 5. It says, may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. And in verse 7, in his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The sun is a fixture that is assumed to endure forever. The moon appears to take its place in the sky night after night after night forever. This is not merely a request that God would give the king a long life. It's not merely a request that God would give the king a long rule. It's a request that God would allow his king to rule forever. And verse 7 emphasizes it, that this eternal rule is requested because when there's flourishing of righteousness, not of wickedness, and abounding of peace, not turmoil or war, this is the best thing for the people and it's what we desire. And so you see, the request to rule is not just for longevity. It's a request to rule for eternity. And if that was not brash enough, he continues with a request not just for regional rule, but for universal dominion. He says in verse 8, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the whole world serve this king, David prays. And this rule of his, may it not just be limited to geographical boundaries, but may, we, may those boundaries be completely broken down. But it's not just geography that he speaks of. He speaks of the people themselves within that geography. That not just would his rule extend across all of the land, but that all of the peoples of all of the land would indeed recognize him as king. And so he says in verse 9, may the desert tribes bow down before him. Those are people. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. Those are people who represent kingdoms of people. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all of the kings fall down before him. All of the nations serve him. Now never in the history of the world has a ruler been recognized as the king over every single nation. You probably have heard the expression that during the height of the British Empire in the 18th and 19th century, the expression was said, that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And at that time, the Britons controlled about 25% of the territory of Earth, 
which meant that no matter what time of day it was, the sun was always shining somewhere in the British Empire. But that expression and that desire far predates the British Empire. The concept of global rule has been a concept of kings and empires for as long as there's been such. Mesopotamian texts that are dated back to 2,300 years before Christ proclaim that the king ruled all the lands from sunrise to sunset. And the story of Sinehu announces that the Egyptian king, 1,900 years before Jesus, that that Egyptian king rules all what the sun encircles. And we see that in the histories of Herodias that are attributed to King Xerxes before invading Greece, that the Persian Empire shall extend as far as God's heavens reach. The sun will then shine on the land beyond our borders. Fast forward some hundreds and hundreds of years after that, the Roman Empire is described in classical Latin literature as extending from the rising to the setting of the sun. Empires of the world for thousands of years have sought to rule not just their nation, not just the nations around them, not just the continent that they are on, they have sought to rule the entire globe. But verse 8 indicates that there is one king who actually will. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The psalmist prays that the kings of Tarshish, which is in Spain, kings of Sheba, which is in modern day Yemen, kings of Seba, which is in Africa, would all bow before him, pay tribute, and bring gifts from every direction away from Jerusalem, that the peoples would be represented and bow before this king because his dominion extends in every direction to all the reaches of all of the earth. But look at the reason why they come to bow before him. It's not because he has conquered them in military might. The reason why they come to bow is because of his concern and his enacting of perfect justice. Look at verse 12. All the kings fall down before him, all the nations serve him, verse 11, for, or the reason why they do, is because he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who have no helper. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Compassion, justice, and righteousness are more compelling 
than power and violence. They come willingly to the king from the far reaches, not under compulsion, but because they want to. I wonder if you've ever met anybody like that, anyone who oozes righteousness and godliness, not self-righteousness, not condescending, accusatory posture, but someone who oozes good, godly things. And because they do, they become irresistibly attractive. You want to be by them merely because of the character that they exude. You want to be near to them because you know the benefit of their righteousness is somehow gleaned by you. Have you ever met somebody like that? If you have, you know that though some people might be put off or by that because they're intimidated by it, that those who see the benefit, those who sense the genuine nature of it, can't help but be drawn to it. You see, that's a picture of this king. Universal rule is not obtained by force. Universal rule is obtained through justice and righteousness. The stanza ends in verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All of the nations call him blessed. God made that very promise to Abraham to the father of his people. And now David is seeking the same blessing upon his son, Solomon. To Abraham, God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in your families, all of the earth will be blessed. And now, O Lord, cries David, Make the king in the same way that you've blessed our forefather Abraham. How could he possibly ask such a bold request? How could he go before God and say, God, I'm going to ask you for a whole bunch of things for the king and the kingdom, for my very own son, and I want you to do these things, and among them, I'm going to ask for the most outrageous things that he would live and rule forever and that his dominion would be global in its scope. How could David possibly think that God would honor a request like that? Well, he does because God has already promised to do so. God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And David prays that God would fulfill 
that promise in and through his son, Solomon. The psalm ends with the expression of worship back to God himself as the true king over all of the world. Any request is directed to him. Any good that comes from them are credited to him. He stands above all. He is sovereign over all. And the choices that he makes and the decisions that he enacts are perfect in their ways. And so he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. God's name communicates his essential being. Theologian Louis Barry Schaefer once said that God's glory is all of his divine attributes combined and then raised to the nth degree. There is no one like him. No one greater. God himself is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and is able to do the thing that David prays for him to do. And so when you look at history, you see that David prayed the very highest of prayers for Solomon and for his kingship. He held nothing back. He asked for it all. And you might summarize all of the magnitude of requests in a couple categories. He asks for God's justice and God's righteousness to be upon him. He asks for eternal rule and universal rule. He acknowledges God is the ruler of all, even over the kingdom of his people and the kingdom of his son Solomon. But as you look forward in history, you see that Solomon's reign was great, In many ways. He did have a reign of phenomenal influence over many people. And God did give him supernatural wisdom, which resulted in tremendous prosperity in which the globe had never seen before. However, even in that prosperity, King Solomon never achieved the rule and the righteousness and justice, and worldwide dominion, and peaceful reign that his father had prayed for. Following his death, his son Rehoboam took the throne, and it was revealed how the people really felt about King Solomon in his final days. When they came to Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12, 4, and said, your father made our yoke heavy. Now... Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Hardly a kingdom defined by justice and looking out for the needy. In fact, no earthly king would achieve the type of reign that David had prayed for. David's line itself would eventually fall. The kingdoms would split. They'd go into exile in Babylon. And the question remained, well, what about God's promise? What about God's promise to David to establish uh, your house and your kingdom to be made sure forever? And your throne established forever? 
What about that promise? And as time went on and there was no king on the throne in Israel, Israel knew that God would need to fulfill his promise in the future. So this is where Psalm 72 points us to the coming of King Jesus. Because Solomon's kingdom was large, but did not span the entire earth. But years later, the prophet Zechariah would quote Psalm 72 to describe the reign of the coming king, Jesus, when he said, his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And if that is true, and if Jesus' reign will span the entire globe, then the very simple application is that this means that his reign will expand over you and your life as well. As you look at that, you think to yourself, what's the picture that's being painted here? It's this. Through God's righteous king, God's peaceful kingdom will spread throughout the earth. Solomon died. His kingdom came to an end. Solomon exercised justice, but his justice was not complete. Solomon exercised righteousness for part of his life. At the end of his days, he adopted the foreign gods of his foreign wives. But a few hundred years after Solomon's death, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about another coming king, one who would do all of the things that Solomon did not do. And he does so in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. David's throne, check. A government that never ends, check. A kingdom upheld in justice and righteousness, one who is referred to as bringing peace, the prince of peace. And if Jesus' reign will never end, then you can live in hope. No matter how bleak or depressing or threatening the things around you might seem right now, Jesus will reign supremely and forever. And you must ask the question, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace who obtains peace through perfect justice and perfect righteousness, then the question for some of you is, why do you war against him? Why do you resist him? 
Why do you bristle at the fact that there might be an authority over you, even if the authority is perfect in his ways? Because make no mistake about it, that is exactly what you do when you ignore his commands or when in the crossroads of your mind you choose your way for life over his way for life. In this, we war against the one who knows things perfectly and purely and justly and righteously. Those things that actually lead to our peace That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. But some of us want the peace, but we don't want the Prince. And despite our warring with him, he still, still desires to give us peace. This king is gracious. Merciful. He's quick to forgive. He's willing to lovingly restore. If you want peace, but you've been at war, come to this king and he will receive you. Through God's righteous king, God's peaceful kingdom will spread throughout all of the earth. Solomon attained prosperity for himself and for his kingdom, but he wasn't known as one who looked out for the poor and the needy. But when Jesus came, Luke chapter four, he announces in the synagogue that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he proved it. He met with lepers and blind people and lame people and widows and poor people and outcasts. And he restored them. And of course, we recognize that the coming of King Jesus at Christmas was the beginning of the kingdom. He announces it in Mark chapter one. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Through God's righteous king, God's peaceful kingdom will spread. But we also recognize that as the kingdom is expanding, it's not yet complete. The tension of Psalm 72 is David prays. It's not fulfilled in Solomon completely. And it's not fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, who is the king that it's talking about. Completely. There's still needy and poor among us. There's still injustice. There's still a lack of peace. But he's coming again. And when he returns... All things will be reckoned unto himself and the kingdom will be made full and complete. And so what do you do, O Christian? What do you do in the here and now? You live in light of the coming king and you pray for the coming kingdom. 
You pray the prayer of David for Solomon, except for this world. When was the last time that you prayed with any urgency for the coming kingdom of God? How often do you think about that? How often do you think about the fact that at some point in the very near future that God will reckon all things to himself and his kingdom will be made complete? And all of the angst and the tension and the depression and the anxiety and the fear that you have in your life will be completely resolved in that moment as the king returns. Advent reminds us that there will be a second advent. The coming of Jesus reminds us that he will be coming again. And so pray, pray that through God's righteous king, God's peaceful kingdom will spread throughout all of the world and that the Lord will do that very, very, very soon. This morning, I want to close by reminding you of a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, which is later set to music as one of our Christmas carols. It's called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And it was written in either 1863 or 1864, right in the middle of one of the bloodiest wars, the bloodiest war in American history. The carol's first verse is familiar and it's peaceful and it brings a smile to your face. He writes, I heard the bells on Christmas day. Their old familiar carols play. In music sweet, the tones repeat. There's peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the carol is not cotton candy. (laughs) It's a beating heart that's laid bare in the midst of a season of tremendous grief. And it's a carol that still rings true today. By the third stanza, the tone has changed. And it says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He wrote to his friend, Henry Ingersoll Bowditch in 1866, the death of young men in war makes my heart bleed whenever I think of it. How much I have felt for you particularly on that cold December night when I came back to my son and I saw you at the station and knew that yours would not come back to you anymore. This is the landscape in which he wrote and it's not a dissimilar landscape from ours today because Even though we're not in a literal civil war, you can see and sense and feel the anxiety of some foundations of our country that are splitting and cracking wider and wider. You can feel and see and observe injustice that abounds. People with power abuse it. People without it suffer. Day after day, the news cycles through the horrors and the horrors and the horrors of the previous 24 hours. And many days, it just feels all like it's too much. It's all too overwhelming. It all breeds a lack of hope. But then Longfellow 
brings the gospel to bear. And the final and triumphant stanza in its implication, he says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that comes when the king returns. Through God's righteous king, God's peaceful kingdom will spread throughout all of the earth. And so friend, take heart and take hold of him. Live in the hope of his return, his second coming. Live today in light of his reign, which does exist, though you might not feel it completely. And look to tomorrow as the second advent comes. Let's pray together. Father, long before we knew what was needed, your plan was in place. And you are so patient. We thank you for a true and eternal king that is perfect in his ways. God, we pray with all of those who have come before us and in the manner in which Jesus taught us to pray, come Lord Jesus. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, we trust you for what we need today, for today and for tomorrow. And we anticipate, even this Christmas, with great joy, the fact that he has come, that the kingdom has begun, and that the kingdom will reach its full fulfillment at your appointed time. In his great and mighty name, the name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.